I want to start by reading an excerpt from a, a great book by Les Moyer called The Missing Jewel. And it talks about the story of how God has opened up a well of worship in this nation. Uh, sometimes it takes an outsider to remind you of how rich your worship heritage is. You have an incredibly rich heritage, a rich future, but uh, an inordinate global influence for your size. And uh, essentially, I, I want to humbly call you to steward the well of worship well. Uh, many men and women have toiled hard to open up a well of worship in this nation that has not only fueled the church and fueled revival here, but has touched so many nations in, uh, uh, across, across the earth. Uh, you're not really called to, to dig a well as much as you are to call to keep it open. And in the, in the intro, um, Les Moyer, who, who really is a father to the, the worship leaders that you would know, the Noel and Tricia Richards, the Tim Hughes, the Martin Smiths, the Matt Redmonds, those, uh, the Graham Kendricks, um, he, he actually quotes Terry Virgo, and uh, Terry talks about uh, a transformation in the church in the 60s, I'm just trying to give you a sense of history, and uh, he says this, Terry Virgo, a young pastor at Vale Road Evangelical Church in Seaford, who eventually became a leading figure in the charismatic movement, recognized something had changed, even though the songs remained the same. He's talking about the 60s. Uh, he quotes Terry, while singing old hymns at church, people would, would start putting their hymn books down halfway through the last verse. It had become so formal, but this was different. People wanted to tell God how much they loved him. I'd never known anything like it before. You felt a motivation to worship a fresh love and intimacy and a sense of the immediacy of God's presence, which drew out worship from your heart in an unprecedented way. Worship began to be restored simply because we were enthused with Jesus and thrilled with the Holy Spirit. I don't think we were consciously thinking that we needed to restore worship. I just think we started worshiping. Beautiful. Uh, I think at a, at a gathering like this, even though it's been short, it's been so sweet, and there's a tendency, I always have that tendency of, if I, if I could just bottle worship and take it home to my church. If I could just bot bottle something of the presence of God, the sweetness of God. And, and the bad news is we can't. Uh, but, but the good news is that Jesus wants to open up a well of worship in every local church. And I want to read from this very well-worn passage in my 20 minutes uh, about Jesus and the woman at the well. And it is fascinating that he, he, he gives his best teaching on worship next to a well. And uh, John 4 says this, we know it well, uh, and where there's a well, there's a way. When Jesus learnt that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. 
Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. That's midday. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that it is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said, So I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship must worship in spirit. And in truth, the word of the Lord. I just want to make four statements in terms of keeping worship hot or, in my words, keeping the well of worship open. The four statements are this, that we need to understand that God is a seeker. Secondly, that he is seeking for worshipers, not worship. Uh, Thirdly, that he's seeking for true worshipers and that he's seeking for spirit-led worshipers. God is a seeker. Uh, when we come to worship, and I, I know that I'm referring primarily to singing worship. Uh, I hope we understand that worship is far more about a life laid down than a song offered up. Um, but, but I'm talking about our musical aspect of worship in particular. We need to understand that God is not playing hide and seek. Jesus describes his Father as seeking a people. And what's, what's fascinating is Jesus, who represents the Father, it says at the beginning, Jesus had to go via Samaria. Uh, and, and actually, there's no reason for the had to other than this conversation with this lady. Uh, it, it was a grand detour to get where he was going via Samaria. There was something that, that, that caused Jesus to... I, I, I'll, I'll take the long way around. And in fact, he gets to the well at midday and he's wearied from his journey. Jesus is wearied from taking the long way around to have a conversation with the woman. He is going and seeking those who are lost. And he spoke to her about the knowableness of the Father. You, you worship what you do not know, but, but, but I'm going to introduce you to a father that, that you can know, that you can know. 
worship begins with this understanding that, that, that God is seeking after us more than we are seeking Him. Uh, humanity is described with our first parents, Adam and Eve, they were the ones hiding. God came seeking with skins. It's, 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 it's we who are playing hide and seek. So often in worship, we go like, well, Lord, where are you? I'm coming after you. We just need to understand, even though we feel that sometimes, and that's a valid feeling, God, the trueness about God is that he is seeking. And in fact, he came seeking while they hid behind fig leaves. He came with skins. The very first sacrifice, which spoke of the sacrifice of the son, was God in the garden coming, saying, Adam, where are you? I'm not hiding from you. You hiding from me. The grand love affair that God has with his people is that they're hiding and he's seeking. We need to understand that. Augustine, early church father, talked about building a culture of worship. He says, a culture, culture is created by what we worship. Therefore, in order to create godly cultures of worship, we need a reordering of our loves. And often the way we hide. Why, why God seems far off is that we love other things, other people, other pursuits more than Him. And, and the heart of worship actually is coming back to God as our first love, which means a reordering of those things we love. Chalmers, the expulsive power of a new affection. Uh, worship is the Start saying yes to God first, love you first. It's the expulsive power of a new affection. Of course, in our meetings, we need to be seeker sensible, but we need to realize that ultimate the ultimate seeker is God. Uh, we, we, we need to be most sensitive to Him. Of course, we need to translate what's going on. But friends, the gathered church in worship, we, we, we gather for God and to God. We need to learn to translate that for other seekers. But man, if we start to get super self-conscious and dumbed down, this, this very first nature of to, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, we start to lose that and get all self-conscious because they're seekers, we miss the very reason the church gathers. Uh, when we start to build our churches around seekers, it's like building a steakhouse for vegetarians. We do need to, to be careful of idiosyncrasies and, and, and no, vocabulary and not explaining things, etc. So much gets lost in translation. But my friends, there, 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 is, there are actually few things as missional as the people of God pouring out their lives and their praise to God. I spoke two uh, days ago about my friend Ryan Melcher, the Jewish man who's been journeying with us for four years. And uh, a week ago, he, he asked me for dinner. And uh, during the dinner, he leant across and he just said, I, I believe that Jesus is the Messiah. I believe that he is the Son of God. And I want to tell you the, the, the most catalytic moment for Ryan, although it's been four years before his confession of Jesus as Messiah. Uh, about, about a year ago, I was having a, a meal with him. And and, and I said, what's, what's going on? You, I, I watch you in, in worship, and, and, and you seem engaged, but is it uncomfortable? I'm trying to translate what's going on for him. He says, man, I enjoy the preaching, I understand, but, but the worship, I, I don't really understand. But, but, but he says, you know what happens? I've got my gym partner, Brent, right next to me. 
And as you sing, even though I don't believe what you're singing, this is a year ago, he says, I sense the presence of God. And then he says, and then Brent, who I do gym with, is down on his knees, worshiping, and he says, I know that Brent is having an experience of the love of God that I don't have, and I want it. Worship didn't put him off. Worship was like salt to a thirsty man. And uh, it wasn't the silver bullet, but I tell you what, it was key in his conversion. Let's not become overly self-conscious. Let's be wise. Let's translate. But, oh, the people of God in love with their God is so powerful. Secondly, God is seeking worshipers, not worship. God is seeking worshipers, not worship. Wrong way around. He's not seeking worship. He's seeking worshipers. That's what Jesus said. You worship on this mountain, you worship on this mountain, but a time is coming when the true worshipers will worship in spirit and truth. I don't know what is your favorite mountain, but God doesn't have a mountain. Your favorite lane, your, your, your favorite style, yours might be Graham Kendrick, yours might be the old classic revival hymns, yours might be Matt Redman, that's a shorter, stubby little mountain. Yours might be more kind of soul, gospel. God does not have a mountain. God has purchased every style, every nation, every tribe, every tongue. And I think sometimes as leaders, as worship leaders, we think if we can just dial in our mountain, then God's presence will come. There's nothing wrong with a church having a style, although I believe we need to mix it up a little bit. Just understand that God is not sitting up in heaven tasting songs. He's not ultimately looking for the perfect song and the perfect band. It, it seems what, what, what attracts God and his presence is thirst. He's looking for thirsty worshipers. And you and I have been in those gatherings where the music is not our style at all, but people are just absolutely loving God with all their heart, all their soul, all their strength, and we get caught up even though it's not our mountain. Because God is attracted to thirst. Thirsty people, they will drink from a puddle. They will. They, they're just desperate for God. And sometimes we become connoisseurs. And, 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 and we're only going to drink. We're only going to sing. We're only going to really, if, if it's Perrier water. You know? If, it, if, it's, if it's our perfect flavor. Don't be that kind of church. Don't, don't be that kind of leadership team. Don't, I, I, I've sometimes caught myself more reading meetings than leading meetings. Actually, the, the, the church takes its cue from leaders who are just given. Even as you said, not the thermostats, taste, uh, thermometers, just tasting, but actually setting the temperature of faith, of courage, of love. For me personally, I, I in the late 90s, was so deeply moved with my connection to Soul Survivor, Mike, Mike Pilavachi, Tim Hughes, Matt Redman. And I, I remember the first time... Um, I, I ministered at that church, and, and it was during uh, the season where Matt Redman wrote the song, The Heart of Worship. And it, it began, when the music fades, and, and all is stripped away, and I simply come. And uh, God did something so powerful in terms of a well of worship that was opened in that church, but, but opened in, in this nation in many ways, that for me as a South African, for the first time I was like, I can do that kind of worship. Because before that, all the worship we listened to was kind of Integrity Hosanna, very complicated, very highly produced stuff from America. It was amazing, but it was unreproducible. 
And then I found myself in this vocal, rich, simple, stripped down. It was far more about the, what was happening off the stage than on the stage. And I was like, yes, we can do that. Please can I ask you humbly to treasure that? Because, of course, multimedia and bands and arrangements and everything. I, I, mean, I mean, worship should be beautiful. Worship should be glorious, but worship should always make the people of God feel vital. If, if the people of God off the platform do not feel vital, it's actually more about the mountain than the worshipers. I honestly believe God in his seeking of people is listening more to the hearts and the voices of the non-musical worshipers than those on the stage. And, and, and do we like great songs? Absolutely. Great arrangements? Absolutely. But make sure the people feel vital. God is seeking worshipers, not worship. Thirdly, God is seeking true worshipers, true in life. As I said, far more about a, so- a life laid down than a song offered up. We know the Romans 12 passage. What is spiritual worship that you offer your bodies to God as a living sacrifice? I, I-, I think sometimes God has this mixed sense of I'm loving the songs that have been poured out, but actually the lives, there's a jarring between the lives and the songs. I remember my, my first son, the very, time, very first time he had an ice cream. And he was loving this ice cream, but it was giving him an ice cream headache. And, and he, was, he wouldn't stop licking it, but he was crying while he was licking it. Ah, it's terrible. Not wanting to diminish our great God, but in some ways maybe God's God gets an ice cream headache with our worship because we, we've got some great songs that we sing every breath that I take, every moment I'm awake, I'll live for you. And God's just saying, you're lying. I love you, but you're giving me an ice cream headache. Doesn't mean that we, we, that we stop singing great songs, but we've got some great songs to live up to, don't we? Uh, God is seeking for worshipers who worship him in truth, true in life, true in doctrine. I'm not going to... S- preach your sermon again, but, but let's be aware of the aspects of God's character that are other. I love to sing about the Father. I love to sing about Jesus the lover, but, but you remember when Moses in Exodus 33 said, God, show me your glory, and, and, and God says, you cannot see my face and live. I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock, and he passes, and he says, I will show you my glory. I'm gracious, compassionate, slow to anger. Uh, you can imagine Moses just saying, yes, Lord, that's beautiful. Slow to anger and abounding in love. And then he says, and I will have mercy on who I will have mercy. <laughs> I'm the sovereign God. I'm other. I'm not like you. Yes, I'm gracious and com- compassionate. But can you take the otherness of me? And can I just ask you that we don't just sing about the intimacy of God. We sing about the majesty of God. The God who is far off. He's not, Jesus is my boyfriend. Jesus is intimate with us, but, but actually he's the lion and the lamb. True in theology, those aspects. You know that great Stuart Townend hymn, In Christ Alone. And on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Well, the Presbyterian church, with that one arm in the USA, has banned it because they don't want the word wrath. God is not wrathful. They've banned it. And the whole aspects of the church that, that, that are, are writing out, cutting and pasting anything that has to do with penal substitutionary atonement, we must sing about the atonement of God, Jesus in our place, living the life that we could not live, dying the death that we should have died in our place. Sing it loud, not just Jesus who is intimate, both, true in doctrine.
And then finally, God is seeking worshipers who, not just true, but worshipers who are spirit-led. Many of us love this about God. Some of us struggle, oh, I'll sing about the Father, Jesus, but Holy Spirit, I don't know about that. We, we have these ideas of charismatic freak shows, and I, I, I just don't know about that. I grew up Methodist, and I remember the first time I went to a really charismatic church, and a lady was flicking a ribbon, and we brought our family, and my, my brother-in-law and sister-in-law are both over six foot tall, and this lady kept on flicking them on the head, and I'm just going, this is so cringy. Took me a while to, to warm to, to the reality of the person of the Holy Spirit. Paul said in Philippians 3, we who worship by the Spirit of God. We worship by the Spirit of God. We don't have to be weird. But actually, if you look at Jesus, he was Spirit-led. He was Spirit-empowered. He was Spirit-dependent. He was Spirit-anointed. You say, oh, I'm into Jesus. Not into the Spirit. Je- Jesus was into the Spirit. And so let's be a people who plan well, who process well, but, but hold our plans lightly, who give the Holy Spirit elbow room and say, Lord, we've planned well, but won't you come and blow? Which way are you blowing? Give him some elbow room. Don't be so locked onto the, 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 the minute planning. Watch the clock. Honor the clock. That's why I'm landing right now. But, but within the clock, within the clock, no, no comment to you, honestly. Within the clock, be open. Give him some elbow room. I'll land with the story. We, uh, we baptized a lady in, in January called Brandy. And she's got a large family. And uh, during worship one day, she came to our newest elder, who's a kind of a big guy. And she just said, I, I hear that you pray, you, you're a church that prays for sickness. And he said, yeah, yeah, we do. And uh, so she just says, well, I'm in fourth stage cancer. Uh, they've, they've given me no hope. Um, I, I'm a new Christian, but would you pray? And uh, he just, you know, while we're worshiping, he, he just begins to pray. And I'm going, what's going on there? But he just begins to pray. Anyway, a week later, she comes back. She just says, I had seven lesions. They've shrunk to one lesion. And even that one lesion is like half its size. And she just keeps on saying to this guy, who's a big guy, she's like, he's my guardian angel. He's my guardian angel. I said, more like a cherubim. But anyway, but he, 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 she's just like, I've, I've never seen this. This is, this is just amazing. And, uh, and then she starts bringing her family. Come, come, let me show you my guardian angel. And this guy's just like, no, it's Jesus, it's Jesus. But long story short, on, on Easter Sunday, we baptized her husband and her six grown-up kids. Because they, they just encountered the power of God. And I just go, look, you're... I, I hope you haven't got saved just because Jesus is healed. But, but, but healing, the power of God is like, like the dinner bell that rings and gives people a real thirst for the real well, hunger for the real meal, Jesus Christ. Let's trust God that our, our worship would not just be true, would not just be integrous, but it would be powerful. It would be saturated with the presence of God. Not weird, but powerful. Amen. These are some of the ways that we keep the well of worship open in our churches. Don't wish that you had American worship. 
God has done such great things in this nation. And, and part of your beauty, a large part of your beauty, is its simplicity and its humility. And you know what? That's reproducible in many other nations. Let's be a people who worship. Amen? Let's stand. Jesus, we, we thank you so much that you are the one who gives living water. You are the healer not only of our bodies, but more importantly, the healer of our souls. You have come and you have soothed the deepest wounds. You have washed away by your blood the deepest stain of sin. And yet we thank you that that salvation was not just a moment in time. You continue to give us water to drink. Water that will deeply satisfy more than any other drink we can have. And we thank you that that we would be a worshipping people who are sought out by you thank you that you are not playing hide and seek thank you, thank you that you are longing to meet with your people longing to draw near so we draw near with, with hearts full of gratitude to love you with our strength our emotions, our our mind, our, our affections to love you because you are the only one who satisfies.